1: There was a conversation recently wherein a group of people were discussing around the dinner table what was the hardest chapter, what was the most difficult chapter of your life. And uh, some people were saying, well, you know, I lost lost a loved one, Uh, uh, I I went through divorce, Uh, I went through um, seventh grade. And it kind of came to me and the the question was, what was the most difficult time of your life? And without missing a beat, my 20s. Uh, Now, my 20s were glorious in one respect, and then it was largely kind of like, my life was a controlled explosion. I mean, it was lots of fun, okay? But there was so much doubt mixed in with this. Am I going to make it, you know? Here I've got a college degree and I'm waiting tables in New York City, what the hell is going on? Uh, am I gonna be able to make rent? You know, Relationship after relationship after relationship, you know, things like this where it was, it was just, it was explosive, okay? But what it did is that era of my life it was 8, nine, ten years, really kicked my butt. And the transformation that occurs when we go through a huge amount of butt kicking, when life really starts throwing stuff at us that we just don't know how to deal with, we hit a point, some of you may have experienced this, where you just kind of, you give up. And that was the great gift of my 20s, was that it offered me uh, a crash course on heart tenderization. That I, in fact, cannot control everything. That just because up until that point, everything I touched turned to gold, doesn't mean that that Midas touch goes on forever. In fact, it can't. And what this allowed for, then, was a real uh, magical kind of Uh, transition time into my 30s where I realized I really didn't have control at all. And I was, uh, instead of being scared about how much I didn't know, it started to take on a thrilling quality. I bring this rather personal anecdote up because I think that one of the gifts of hardship whatever that hardship might be, is it tenderizes us. And when we are tenderized by life, the natural outcropping of that is generosity. It's so much easier to be compassionate when you yourself have gone through hell doesn't mean it's necessarily easy to watch someone go through a hellish karma. You know, they're going through just a horrible stage and there's a tendency uh, for most of us to want to fix that or prevent it before it starts when indeed it may be this amazing opportunity for them to evolve into that next if you will more uh, expansive place of consciousness. But first, we start with ourselves. Can we ourselves begin to allow for a tenderization by life? Can we fearlessly meet this experience called life with a radical generosity? We've been working this past several weeks on um, kind of a, a little a process and I called it a passage. Indeed, we go through, we go through passages in life that carry us on to the next, the next level. And in each and every case, that passage is informed by component parts. The P stands for presence. The A stands for accountability. The S stands for surrender. The next S stands for Stillness, thank you, Mark. <laughs> yeah. I was going to make something up. If you didn't jump in there, the S stands for scotch. The, the A then stands for all knowing or knowing the all, getting a sense of the infinite. And G stands for generosity. And if you're keeping score at home next week, it'll be engagement. How do we engage? But doing that from a place of generosity is absolutely key if we are to embody Buddhahood. Instead of being a good Buddhist or a good Christian, at this point, we begin to be Buddhas and Christs. Instead of experiencing hell on earth, we begin to become, very naturally, very generous agents of heaven on earth. So as we sit tonight, if you could just be present with what's going on, rather than trying to do anything, rather than trying to calm down, or rather than trying to you know, work on your chakra alignment or whatever it might be, if you can just actually be with what is, with the sounds, with the feelings, with the thoughts, If you look at it differently you could look at having an open relationship to your environment an open relationship to your body and an open relationship to your mind if you can just begin to watch all those things as they kind of pop up if you can just begin to be totally present everything else can follow So as we explore generosity, it might make sense for us to begin by looking at what is not generous, what is, what is greedy, greed, why does it arise? Why does greed arise? Uh, in spiritual terms, one of the biggest reasons that greed arises is um, we're on overwhelm that we are, we are, we are just barely, barely able to keep up, and that when we are barely able to keep up or we feel in some way threatened, um, what we do is we look to get as much as we can. We explore options for gain, if this makes sense. Looking to try to, if, if you will, protect ourselves Uh, stabilize ourselves when we are feeling so off balance. Second reason uh, is that we are really good at negotiating. Egos are great at negotiating. And they will negotiate the costs of greed pretty readily. In other words, they will negotiate them away. The costs of being greedy to the ego, are fairly slight. Until you know some disastrous things happen, you know where it's directly felt by the small self or the ego. Uh, it tends to it tends to go for short-term gain as opposed to uh, you know long-term long-term peace. And that's very natural. That's what the ego does. But perhaps the most fundamental reason that we are not generous or that we are greedy is because of one simple thing, and that is fear. In spiritual terms, fear of being uh, washed away by this overwhelm, let's say. Fear of uh, not having enough. Fear of death. Fear of losing. This is actually what helps to inspire this energy pattern for greed. And greed is grasping. Okay? It's a systematic grasping. Okay? Um, So what are those costs of greed? Well... The biggest cost is that it doesn't get to the underlying core of why greed arises in the first place or why non-generosity arises. Non-generosity arises because of fear. And if we are continuing our patterns of greed, basically what we're doing is we're allowing fear to run our lives. You may have heard uh, some facsimile of this great quote, uh, and I have no idea who said it, Uh, But um, we uh, tend to be run by the things we run away from. All those things we're trying to ditch, right? Trying Trying to run from. They're pretty much what govern our lives. And so as long as we're in that space of being governed by the things we're running away from, we're not stopping our run. We are continually trying to escape. And as long as we're continually trying to escape, we are no longer facing our lives. And if we're no longer facing our lives, we're no longer being honest. And if we're no longer being honest, there's no way we can be fearless. And there's really no way we can be compassionate or generous. Greed also tends to make things murky. I don't know if you've noticed this. When we act out of self, self-interest self and short-term gain, it uh, tends to uh, inspire a tremendous lack of clarity in what it is that we're trying to do. We become... Uh, agitated. We tend to live from a, a space of uh, agitation, largely because we feel perpetually threatened. Even if it's just by, it's, if it's nothing major, it can be just small stuff. Have you ever met um, an individual who can be just pushed right over the edge with something very small? It's, it doesn't take much, and they boom! This may be a personality type if you want to look at it that they may score a certain way with the enneagram they may you know whatever all right but when it comes into focus here in, in this context in the spiritual context someone who is bursting forth with rapid fire response okay is coming at the world from a place of fear they're coming at the place from a place, excuse me, they're coming at the world from a place where they feel like they don't have enough. Sidestepping and looking back just a little bit, they will never feel like they have enough. (laughs) Why? Because they're afraid. There's no degree of peace that's able to inspire any type of release. And without that release, there can be no generosity. The other thing that greed tends to inspire, and I think this is fascinating, is it inspires guilt. Greed tends to inspire a a feeling within us that looks something like anger, Directed inward. Why couldn't I be more? You know, that type of thing. Or I've heard uh, guilt described as regret plus self-attack. And guilt, depending on who you talk to, there's a guy, uh, Joe Weiss out of San Francisco, I think, who, uh, he wrote a great book called How Psychotherapy Works about 15 or 20 years ago, and his whole thing is how guilt actually is the, is the big thing. It's not, if you start looking at psychotherapy, you know, you, these Freudian principles or Jungian principles, all these things, they're fine, but that ultimately, it's this regret plus self-attack that tends to keep us small, and as long as we're staying small, the chances of us moving into an expansive place are diminished rather radically, Um, with that said, I, I also will say that, uh, guilt gets a bum rap periodically because if you, if you really think about it, guilt, uh, guilt inspires some pretty powerful ethical structures. You know, so as much as I will come down on guilt and say, you know, watch out for this. This is something. This is this is delusion at you know at its best when we've got regret plus self attack. Boy, talk about an egoic situation. Yeah. Okay, fine. That's true. It is also true that uh, guilt, over time, over the course of human history, has put us into a space where we agree. That uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not, right? A lot of thou shalts from the uh, uh, Old Testament or in the Buddhist tradition, um, you can look at all of the precepts. Same type of thing. All right? A disciple of the Buddha does not kill. Sounds like the same thing pretty much. Thou shalt not kill or a disciple of the Buddha. You get the idea. You can go right down the list and we can see a tremendous set of parallels where did those structures come from? Well, they came from this feeling of guilt. Collectivized. You want to see collectivized guilt in playing out in some fascinating ways? Go to Germany. Go to Germany. It's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Uh, having traveled there uh, you know, a bit. Uh, and looking at what the legacy of the 20th century nightmare that they uh, allowed to uh, that, that, was, that was birthed there. It's, it's amazing what that has done to them culturally. On the other hand, on the other side, greed. Knowing our greed, studying our greed, allows us to turn it into an object that we can see, that we can witness. And that deeper subject, looking at the object of greed, that deeper subject, its natural tendency is generosity. And as we begin to cultivate it, as we begin to cultivate generosity, we start seeing some rather significant positives Affiliated with it. Now this may sound tremendously obvious. Being generous is a good thing. Uh, I uh, was once um, listening to a debate between some uh, 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 dharma teachers about, uh, you know, what is an appropriate response. Um, the, the great line, you know, what, what, what are the teachings of a lifetime? And Yun Men said, uh, an appropriate response. An appropriate response, in other words, is Buddha. And what then is Buddha? What is an appropriate response? And after listening to these guys kind of, you know, do their uh, enlightened boxing match, you know, listening to them kind of yammer on and on and on, um, it really came down to generosity. The appropriate response is the generous response. But... It's not generous for that person there only. It's generous for that person and everybody else. And there's one more deep bit of inclusivity that has to be part of this mixture. It's generous for that person and everyone else, including me. So, if you are martyring, you are essentially harming Can you actually develop the ability to offer appropriate responses by being deeply, deeply generous? You can't do it unless the quality of your consciousness comes from a very, very deep place. If we can, however, things aren't as murky, there's a deeper clarity there's a deeper confidence we're less likely in other words to get rattled when we come from a place of generosity which uh, actually means that we are standing in our own light. And when we're standing in our own light we are able to live in the world as a mountain. There's a certain immovability. There's a certain kind of quiet, resigned, here I am, when we are coming at life from a place where the ethics are deep, where the generosity inspires our behavior. When you are meeting your life From a place of radical honesty. When you're totally being true and real. And I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever, let's say you had a stage in your life where you were really radically honest, you know, before you won the lottery, let's say, or something like that. You know, you're radically honest. People can't call you out on stuff. Because you're like, well, they're having a rough day. On the other hand, if We aren't living in that space of deep generosity or from that space of deep generosity and people are calling us out on stuff. It's like those arrows sting. They're incredibly, incredibly damaging. Their unconsciousness, in other words, maybe another way to put it, their unconsciousness tweaks our own and unconsciousness meets unconsciousness and that handshake actually begins to look more and more like a punch. War is born in that space when unconsciousness inspires somebody else's unconsciousness. If we are living from a deeply generous, open, giving, truthful space, we're not pushed around by somebody else's unconsciousness. We can't be. And we also don't look down on it. I mean, what's, what could be worse? You know, somebody's having, you know, kind of a temper tantrum. You're like, oh, <laughs> I'm enlightened. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. But you begin to listen with your whole body, knowing that their attacks aren't personal. Their attacks are reflections of their own lack of generosity, their own greed. And our job is to help them become more conscious. It's not to make them happy. It's not to placate them. It's not to, you know, try to try to heal whatever situation has necessarily got them going. It's to actually create an open space where deep listening and generosity can come through us so that healing can occur, so that consciousness can actually expand. So when we start to go into this space of non-greed, when we begin to become generous, when we orient our life from a place of really, really knowing what is and how it is, really being honest with ourselves, our intention is inspired differently. Our intentions begin to look a little different. They're no longer... We no longer live lives that are about me or me and my tribe or me and this part of the world, let's say, this country. They're actually for all beings. A little psychology for you. You know that um, we sometimes refer to the egocentric the egocentric or pre-conventional self, Piaget's pre-conventional self, which is in this space of, you know, it's all about me. Best example of this is something I live with every single day, this (laughs) little two-year-old, who's, uh, I mean, she has her moments of incredible love and generosity, but for the most part, it's me and it's now. Mommy and I are talking, I don't care. That was the best one today. I don't care. <laughs> That's, well, thank you for sharing. Uh, from there, we move into this uh, 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 the, the, uh, the conventional space, sociocentric. Me and you, our tribe, okay? And they're really rule bound. What are the rules? All right? you can understand, like for instance, fundamentalist behaviors are oriented very deeply in this particular, this particular read: What are the rules? It says here, therefore it must be true, right? And from the conventional, we go into the post-conventional and instead of a sociocentric, it actually becomes a world-centric orientation And that intention is inspired by a much different question. Instead of what's in it for me, or what are the rules, now it's what's going to be helpful. Generosity is born in this space. This world-centric, post-conventional space. But there's another stop, another place, another evolutionary step we can walk into. And we might look at that as Transconventional, not post-conventional, but transconventional, and instead of world-centric, we would look at it as cosmocentric okay and the, from the cosmocentric world space, we're going to be asking an entirely different question instead of what's in it for me, what are the rules or what is helpful now it's what is the mind state that is inspiring this? choice. Cosmocentric plugs into something much deeper. And when we can get into that space, generosity is a very natural outcropping. Generosity has to happen from that place of openness. It's not even a question our compassion spontaneously begins to arise. And it's not like we're inspired to do it. It's that it is. We begin living from that orientation. So it's pretty big stuff. You know, and we're all called to this. Not just to be a good person. But because it's what what enlightenment is. It's what awakening is. It's how, it's how it meets the world. It's how an awakened life meets the world. Not by levitating. You know? Not by suddenly you know, getting rid of all your belongings and living in a yurt, although that might be nice. From where we are right now, this type of awareness and this type of behavior spawned by this type of awareness can be. So, just a couple of quick things on how we might be able to do this. Um, First thing, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the very first thing is to take up a spiritual practice. It's the very first thing. And it can be what we do here, It can be more formal. It can be, uh, you know, you might want to immerse yourself in uh, a tradition. That can be very helpful. It might be Hindu, Jew, Jewish. It might be Christian. It might be Muslim. Take on this practice and let this practice inform you. Let it wash over you. Every one of them, every single one of them has a beautiful ethical structure. And every one of those ethical structures are hell-bent on making sure that generosity is actually coded for. Every single one of them. Next thing. Try living from a generous space. Try living from a generous space uh, through your speech, your behavior, your thinking, just try it on. And if, if it helps, especially if you're, you know, just kind of starting out, do it in small doses. So uh, like, f- for instance, with speech, take that one first. Um, there are three ways that you can compromise generosity really quickly. The first way is through just out and out lying. Okay? The second way, Is um, by withholding. Okay? By withholding. And then the third way would be uh, just flagrant misuses of information. All right? Say that again. Yeah, lies, withholding, and misuse. misuse. And misuse is really common among people who are exceptionally gifted at being technical with their language. Now, that's not a slight against all lawyers. <laughs> but, <laughs> what we find is, we try to, mm, you know, well, I didn't really say that, right? Okay, and that's, that verges on the withhold, but you know, you have a straight up lie, a misuse, right? And then you have, uh, excuse me, straight up lie, a withhold, and then a misuse. Um, and this is especially powerful in, uh, in relationship. You can use your relationship, whatever it might be. It might be an intimate. It might be a sibling. It might be whatever your relationship, it has to be someone that you, you really trust. But, but, you know, you can just be, uh, in a space of, of total honesty with them. Uh, in fact, Um, there are several type of relational practices. Have you ever, you ever heard of the one where you, you, you know, you, you sit for five minutes silent with your eyes open, totally listening with your entire body as they say whatever they feel like they need to say. And then you can either mirror them back. Well, here's what I heard and so forth. But you shut the hell up for those five minutes and then it's your turn. Um, that can be really, really difficult unless you're very skilled at that work because oftentimes, especially as couples start trying this, it's actually kind of funny. I, I shouldn't laugh, but I have a dark sense of humor periodically when you start, you know, they'll say something, you know, you know I feel like you are so much of the time you're doing. And the, and the, you know, the guy, let's say, sitting there going, keeping his eyes open and smiling, which he's supposed to do. And then afterwards, you're wrong on so many different levels, ba-boom, 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 which is not the point. The point is to create a spaciousness where openness and honesty and indeed generosity can begin to flourish and can become kind of that anchoring center point for uh, relationship. So, I, oh, I also, <laughs> I also should say that like, if you're practicing um, this, this authenticity, you know, this generosity of spirit, this honesty, right? <laughs> Please don't misinterpret that as, oh, oh, this is cool. I get to say whatever I want because I'm being honest. No, do these pants make my butt look big? No, <laughs> no, not at all, all right? That's not, that's not, I mean, that, that's a misuse, but one of those misuses can be, it can be actually very, 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 very uh, uh, compassionate, okay? When we start talking about authentically engaging in truth this way, make sure that what you are saying is truthful and helpful. Kind. Aware. That the intention serving the expression of truth, whatever it might be, that the intention itself comes from a place of deep love. Another practice is uh, spend a day, just one, where you're being generous. Where you're being totally generous. Where you're being totally honest. Where you're being totally truthful. And it doesn't count if you just stay in your house. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be relational with this particular practice. Okay, so that's with speech. With uh, With body. Or with action, we might say. How is it that we can be generous? Um, going back to the, the ten Buddhist precepts, you can simplify them down to one, because many of you have heard me talk about this. You can, you can simplify them down to one simple phrase. You can be a disciple of the Buddha who does not kill, who does not take what is not given, who does not abuse sexuality, who does not abuse intoxicants, all those things does not disparage, does not gossip, does not all this thing. You can do that. Or do not do harm. Do not do harm. Let there be no intention in any of your action that is about harm. So can you have a day when you are not doing anything that isn't generous? Can you have a day of not doing harm? Unless they're mosquitoes, because those little bloodsuckers, I hate those things. (laughs) It's the only thing. Can you, uh, by the way, doing that, the cool thing about having a day of telling the truth or having a day of doing no harm or day of being generous, whatever, it refines your awareness same thing with being quiet. And you can never believe, like at Zen Center, I'd watch these guys. You know, they're setting down, like setting something, so that it wouldn't make any noise. And I'm like, put the freaking clapper down, dude. It's not a big deal. It's not going to make. You know, that's that was my mindset. And what I realized was, it forced awareness. It forced a refinement of one's awareness to be that quiet and that awake. Another thing, another great practice. Um, This is straight from uh, 12-step, but correcting or healing past transgressions against others. Very powerful, powerful way of being generous. Um, Addressing that, I think, can be really, really... uh, Talk about refinement, refinement of being a person owning, being accountable for what's happened and make sure you give yourself um, a time limit you can have the intention but deliver Uh, I would also then say uh, perhaps one of the most powerful aspects of generosity is that it's about forgiveness forgiveness I heard a spiritual teacher say, all spiritual work, all authentic spiritual work begins with forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Talk about generosity. Except real forgiveness is not, I forgive you. You are pardoned. It's not that. Instead, it's, I am you. There is nothing you have done that I might not have done had I been in your shoes. When you're not holding on to that anymore, what does it do? It awakens us to something bigger. It's not because we should. It's because that's what we are. So I guess like kind of the short message here is communicate. I've heard it said um, intimacy is nothing other than heightened honesty. And so to the extent that we hide anything from another person, whether they're a lover or a friend or an acquaintance, uh, our levels of intimacy are inversely correlated to the amount we hide from people. And this work is about nothing other than intimacy. Practice of the, uh, practices of the mind also. Stillness. Taking up a spiritual practice. Meditating. Uh, bringing awareness into your negative emotions. Anger. Fear. Fear. Jealousy, you know, whatever. Bringing awareness into those things has the same effect that being radically honest does in your in your speech. The same effect that your uh, uh, not doing harm has in terms of your action. And so, what do we become at this point? You know, when we start when we start incorporating or embodying this this openness, this honesty, this meeting our lives fully, letting our intentions come from something big and beautiful. Letting the awareness of our mind states inspire our thoughts, our actions, and our speech changes not only us, but it changes the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering about the intention of our mind states. It just seems like it would be so cumbersome to constantly uh, like be aware of the mind state behind having action, and it just seems like um, it
0: almost be kind of just really.
1: It is, it is hard to do. It is hard to do. And ready for my, my big cliche that I always throw your way? Not your, you specifically, but everybody. It's practice. With practice, it becomes not only second nature. It becomes primary nature. We beca- in other words, we start, we start actually orienting ourselves from mind state first. Does that kind of make sense? And all I can tell you to do is practice. It's not cumbersome at all. What's cumbersome is carrying all the stuff we've been carrying. That's cumbersome. When we start really getting deep clarification uh, uh, and embodying deep clarification in our intention, when our intention, our mind state, when we're really clear about our mind state, what happens is whatever mind state we have no longer holds us. Exactly. So what we're doing is we're talking about enlightened choice. And as we have enlight- as, as we begin to embody and share enlightened choice all the time, what happens? We become this v- vortex of generosity and love. And I don't know I don't know what's what could be more important for this world.
0: Forgiveness. Say that's what begins a spiritual practice what was, is that correct I mean is that what you said
1: sorry I wanted to <clears throat> I actually think <coughs> excuse me I actually think that's spot on okay. and it's not only forgiveness of somebody else it's forgiveness of ourselves and so when that, when that intention of forgiveness goes equally and omnidirectionally in other words, it's not just it's not just out there to the people. Maybe we have, you know, trans, trans, trespassed against, but also internally. The trespasses we have made against ourselves. Suddenly we shall not want. Right. Suddenly the Lord's Prayer makes. I mean, it's it's embodied, you know. And so when we look at a, at a, at a spiritual practice, actually starting from that place of, uh, you know, there's a humility to it as opposed to what I know or what I'm going to get or here's what I observed or I, 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 right? Instead of that being kind of the orientation, it's, uh, it comes from a place of uh, uh, ever-deepening humility. Yeah.
0: That's letting go. But that, um, what came up today at work was the forgiveness, but that it, when there's really unspeakable things that happen to someone, then they're young, that they need to go through a process before they start forgiving. But we see it as perhaps the met to the loving kindness, and it's not a question of forgiving someone. It's just a question of allowing that release of that negative energy before you get to that. The end result would be forgiveness. Yeah, well, uh,
1: exactly. I am not convinced that we necessarily have to go through that middle part. Okay? However, based on what I articulated in the very beginning, what, until we have been tenderized by life, what use is spiritual work? Right? So to that extent I think you're absolutely right. But I think that there's there's a, a lot of really interesting research that that I've kind of been interested in that says, you know, the the old school approach, you know, to, you know, you got to let all that stuff out otherwise, you know, you're bottling it in and, and so forth that actually that exacerbates the problem as opposed to providing healing. That it's our mind state that's most important. That if we can begin to study what's going on with our mind in those moments of negativity, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. that perspective right there is freedom.
0: Because if you do loving kindness and there's a block, then you start to notice. Mm-hmm. And you start to get to work with it. Right. Um, so that's why I said you start with that and you, well, you build through practice, like right. You're saying. Right. So I think. Figure we're on the same
1: path. I think does maybe that make we are. Sense? I think it does. I think we're, we're the only. Only thing I, I was uh, I was suggesting might be. Because
0: I wouldn't want to go straight at it.
1: You wouldn't want to go straight to forgiveness.
0: Um. Well, everyone's based on well. Uh, that could be shocking.
1: Exactly.
0: Right. But so what results from that shock at a certain age or a certain person? They're div- they necessarily want to go there.
1: Right. There are developmentally specific mm-hmm. behaviors that are indeed actually very... It is important, for instance, for a kid to develop structure, mm-hmm. right? right? It is inappropriate for someone our age to be hyper-structured, mm-hmm. right? They can do it, but it has absolutely nothing to do with awakening. Now, if we're talking about awakening, we're talking about shocking, Okay this is about calling every single thing you've ever known into question that's shocking this is right this is this is about turning your entire world upside down yes, so absolutely. that the so that the i that thinks it gets whatever the i the i is no longer there
0: Well, there's a war and you're starting to crumble the whole idea that this is a war right it's something else
1: right there's no contest mm-hmm. because the war does not exist
0: yeah which is scary
1: yeah, exactly but it's scary to whom?
0: Uh, the person that sees it as a
1: war. Right, and we call that the small self. Yeah. Is, the big self is the big self or the ego scared of the war?
0: Okay. Well, it doesn't see it as a war,
1: it, it's infinite. It's not a war, okay? And so when intention is inspired from that place, when there's a conscious resonance with big self, small self's ability to control everything, to manage everything in the way it always has, is over. That's the goal. That's shocking. So let's hope that you are utterly and completely shocked and those whose lives you touch can experience the same thing. It is time. Thank you so much for coming.